We may now turn to the portion of God's Word read, the epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, and we may read from verse 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Those words in particular we want to consider. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Now you will see that Paul is asking a number of questions, and it is in response to the questions that he asks that we have these words. In verse 31, Paul asks, If God be for us, Who can be against us? If God be for us, well, who else do we need to be for us? If God be for us, who can withstand God? And if God be for us, and we have that assurance that he is, then we must be confident and we must be assured that all is well between us and God. And the apostle then says in verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. The proof that he is for his people is that he justifies them. Now justification is an act of God's free grace. We know that. And that is sufficient proof that God is for those that he justifies, but sometimes we fall short in our understanding of what justification really involves and what it really includes. Because, you see, justification is more than a mere pardon. The psalmist was asking God on occasions to pardon his iniquity. And uh, yet justification is more than a mere pardon, because if a man is pardoned, he's still guilty. Legally, he's guilty of some crime, but for some reason, he's been pardoned. And instead of the sentence being executed against him, he's pardoned. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Justification, yes, It involves a pardon, but justification requires innocency. And this is what Paul is talking about. It is God that justifieth. God is the judge, and God justifies so that the sinner is able, as it were, to walk from the court, and he's justified. He's righteous. He cannot be justified unless he's righteous. And that's the amazing truth that the apostle is talking about. It is God that justifieth. He declares the sinner righteous. 
Now, that is not because God is unrighteous. God justifies the sinner and declares that sinner that's justified to be righteous in his sight for the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. And what an amazing thing that is that any son of Adam's race should have the righteousness of God in Christ imputed to them. Now the apostle says, it is God that justifieth. Then he asks another question. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. That's why there is no condemnation, because Christ died. Yea, rather, why is there no condemnation? Not just because Christ died, that's very important. But he says, rather, or some, yea, rather, as though he's going to a higher level of justification, as it were, yea, rather. It's as though the death wouldn't be sufficient in and of itself. It's of great importance, but it's not sufficient And so he says, yea, rather, that is risen again. Without his rising again, we simply can't be justified. He is not in a position to justify anyone who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So it's his intercession that's included in the fact that God justifies and declares men to be righteous so that there's no condemnation. You see, when Christ died, he makes an atonement for sin and removes the obstacle between God and man. There can be no fellowship, no communion while sin exists. But when it is atoned for, when it is removed, then there is reconciliation between God who is infinitely holy and the guilty sinner who is justified and his sins atoned for. And it is that atoning death of Christ that brings the sinner nigh to God in a reconciled state. But, It is the intercession of Christ that maintains that fellowship and that communion with God. And that's what Paul has in mind here. The importance of Christ not only dying, but being raised. And not just raised so that people can see he's alive, but he is raised to the right hand of God. And it's not just that he's raised then to be seated in glory, but he also maketh intercession for us. And therefore, this is the complete justification so that there is no condemnation. The evidence, God is for us. What a wonderful thought. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Now it is what Paul writes here that gives assurance of security to the child of God. Many, many of the Lord's people are cast about at times with doubts and fears. They find a corruption within, and so oftentimes they're tempted to think they don't have grace or they're not really reconciled to God. They're not really redeemed. They're not really new creatures in Christ Jesus. And they have doubts and fears. But this is what gives them assurance and gives them peace when they know these things, when they understand them, and when they understand God is actually for me. He's not against me. He's not my enemy. He's not condemning me. He's actually for me. And it is because of Christ's intercession, I know he's for me. He cannot possibly be against me while I have a living Redeemer who is interceding for me. That's what gives the troubled child of God peace of mind and peace in their souls. So we may consider, first of all here, the death of the Savior because he can't make intercession. He's no basis for making intercession unless he has first died. And his death is meaningless unless he's resurrected. And his resurrection is not in reality complete until he returns into the Father's presence. And there he lives to make intercession for his people. One of the old divines has said that Christ's death was his atonement offered, but his resurrection is his atonement accepted. His death was his atonement offered. He offered himself. It was an offering just as the priest made an offering in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Christ atonement, his death, is his atonement offered to God. And how do we know if God has accepted that offering? By his resurrection. His resurrection is his atonement accepted. And if that atonement is accepted, there can be no condemnation. But let us consider some aspects of this death of which the apostle speaks. It is Christ that died. And the first thing that we should note about this death is that it is personal. We have the identity of the one who died mentioned. It is not Paul who died. It's not Peter who died. It's not John who died. It is Christ that died. Now, when we read these words, Christ died, who are we talking about? 
We're talking about the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. Uh, This is the equivalent, the New Testament equivalent. Christ is the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. And this is the one that we're talking about. Christ died, the very one who came to deliver, he died. And yet, because he's Christ, the anointed one, he's God of very God, and he's man of very man. How can God die? How can God possibly experience the pangs of death? But this is what is stated, it is Christ that died. And the first thing that we may note about this personal death of Christ is that it is a contrasting death. There was no death like it. That's what John Owen, the (coughs) Puritans, uh, wrote uh, on the death of deaths. It was the death of all deaths. There was no death could even compare with it uh, in its value and uh, in its substance. If you go back to the book of Genesis, to the book of beginnings, there in chapter 5, We have the names of men who lived to a ripe old age. They spent many years of life in this world. And yet we have in Genesis chapter 5, over and over again, down through that chapter, these words, and he died. However long he lived, he died. In Genesis 5, we read in verse 5, And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. What a long life. And he died. Then we read of Seth. In verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. And you can go right down through that chapter, verse 11, all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And then verse 14, he died, verse 17, and he died, verse 20, and he died, verse 27, and he died. But none of them ever rose again. They died They lived their lives out, long lives, but in the end they died. You think of it in comparison, how long did the Son of God live in this world? What a short life he lived in comparison. Christ died. What a contrasting death. Because not only did he die, but he rose again. He was under the power of death for three days, and he rose again. But these died, and their bodies returned to dust, and their spirits returned unto God who gave it. But then this death of the Savior, it is Christ 
that died, it is a fulfilling death. Why do we say that? Because of the sentence that God passed upon sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that doesn't mean merely physical death. The soul that sinneth, that soul shall die because that soul shall be separated from God, not just for time, but for eternity. An eternity of condemnation separated everlastingly from God, never ever to be reconciled to God and never to have God reconciled to that soul. The fulfillment in Christ's death was the fulfillment of the types that we have in the Old Testament. We are told that the blood of bulls and of goats could not take away sin. Now that does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Not even here this evening would anyone think that at the end of their lives, if they could find a goat or a bull or a lamb and it would be slain and they would offer it on an altar of sacrifice and they would hold up the blood of that animal to God in heaven as an atonement for their sin. No one would think for a moment that would ever work. The blood of bulls and of goats could not and cannot ever take away sin. Nevertheless, God had appointed that there would be offerings made for sin, animal sacrifices, but they didn't give God pleasure because God is, his pleasure is in putting away sin. His pleasure is that sin might be atoned for. His pleasure is that sin would be forgiven. And there was no possibility that God would find any pleasure in these sacrifices and these offerings because they simply could not put away sin. But... Every lamb that was offered, every bullock that was slain, was it a waste of time? Whenever the Hebrew came to the priest with a lamb to be offered as a sacrifice to God, he had to believe there is another lamb, there is a better lamb, there is a perfect lamb yet to be appointed, yet to come. God didn't say, when I see blood, I will pass over you. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God was looking for specific blood. And whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus walking, what did he say as he pointed to him? Behold. Behold, at last, here he is, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. 
You imagine the Hebrew, he comes with his lamb and the priest takes it from his hands. And he says to the man that has brought it, do you believe that the blood, when I now slay this beast, do you believe that that blood will atone for your sin? What would he say? No. He would know perfectly well it won't. But he brings it to God in faith because he's looking that this type or this shadow will be directing him to the reality, to the land that God himself will provide. That's what Abraham said to Isaac when Isaac said, well, we've got the wood here for the offering, we've got the fire, but where's the lamb? What did Abraham say? He hadn't seen the lamb yet. He wasn't aware that there's a a ram caught in the thicket. He could only utter those words by faith. That's all he could do. My son, God will provide the lamb. He was expecting God to provide it. Now we might argue, well, was Isaac to be the lamb? Was he to be the sacrifice? Whenever Abraham bound him to the altar, was he slaying him as the lamb? He was of the mind that even if he slew Isaac, God would resurrect him because of the promise, his covenant promise. But when he said God will provide himself a lamb, he could only say that by faith. And so the Hebrew came with his lamb to the priest to be slain, and he had to trust God's promise. He had to trust God's word. He had to believe this is but a type. This is not the reality. This lamb cannot atone, but it is speaking to me. It is conveying a message to me that God will provide the means to put away my sin forever. And so you have in the epistle that is written to the Hebrews, uh, that epistle that we've referred to recently, as being to the Hebrews. A full book for the Hebrews to teach them to understand what the significance of all the types were and all their ceremonial worship, what it was all about. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we read in verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Why was that body prepared? That body was prepared that it might experience death. A body hast thou prepared me. It was a true body. Uh, There was, in Christ, 
a true body and a reasonable soul. And here we have him saying, A body hast thou prepared. What a masterpiece. God had prepared this body in every fine detail. That body that was to sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the body that had been prepared for him. That body that was nailed to the cross, that's the body that God had prepared for him. That body that could suffer agony untold, that was the body that God had prepared for him. And in Hebrews 10, as we go down through that chapter, we read, as already we've read, A body hast thou prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. But what did God say? He had no pleasure in these things. But he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here's where my pleasure is. This is the source of divine pleasure. We cannot comprehend what God's pleasure really means, the extent of it and the fullness of it, but this is what the Son of God and our nature knew. All those sacrifices, God doesn't have pleasure in them, but he has prepared me a body, and he said, in verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And then in verse 9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. This is why he came and took that body to fulfill the will of God. And what was that will? To put away sin. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's saying Christ died. The lambs died. The oxen died. The goats died. All these sacrifices died. But then we read Christ died. And what a difference that made None of these offerings could take away sin, but Christ's death was different. And that brings us to the reality that Christ's death was a penal death. It was a necessary death because God's sentence was that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin. Sin has to be paid for. And God says the wages of sin. When Moses left Egypt and uh, fled, uh, not fearing the king, uh, uh, he joined himself with the Hebrews, his own people, Eventually he had to flee, but he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. 
Yes, sin can have its season of pleasure. But oh, the bitter end, the wages of sin is death. And you see, when Christ died, we have to then inquire. Well, what sins has he committed? If his death is a penal death, what is he guilty of? What has he done to deserve to die? The wages of sin. What sin is he paying for? And this is the great concern of the apostle. And what does he write to the Romans? Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Those who have nothing of God in their spirit or in their soul, they're ungodly. But Christ died for the ungodly. This is how God commends his love to us, that when we were without, were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any. But oh, the wonder of it, when we read in chapter 9 of the epistle to the Hebrews, in the chapter 9, again in this book written specifically for the Hebrews, in uh, chapter 9 and verse 28, we read, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of of many. He bore no sin of his own, not one, but he bore the sins of many. And he had to take the wages. He was paid in full because he bore the sins of many. He won, Christ was once offered the atonement, his death, his atonement was the offering made to God for the sins of many. Now you think of it, what was he doing? He's offering up his perfect, obedient life. Here's a life judged by the law. And the law can find no ground whatever for condemnation. The law cannot pronounce him to be guilty of one solitary sin. Yet, now he bears the sin of many. What has he to offer to God that might atone for all those sins? The sins of many. You think of it. This world of ours, what multitudes, innumerable multitudes of sins are being committed at this very moment in time. Millions upon millions upon millions of sins being committed at this very moment. Sins of thought as well as sins of deed. Can we begin to even comprehend 
what these words mean. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. What was it like to have the awful sins of men, the violation of the Ten Commandments, the violation of God's law, to be led upon Christ? You think of it. What's the first and great commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. What was it like to have that sin led upon Christ as though he was guilty that he'd never loved God? He had never loved the Father condemned as though he never had a heart for the Father. When all the time from eternity past to the moment when the wrath of God descended upon him, he had never done anything else but love the Father. He dwelt from all eternity in the very bosom of his Father. He loved him with all his heart. It was a communion of love. And yet, he who was once offered to bear the sins of many, what a burden, what a crushing, crushing burden whenever he bore those sins. Back in the prophecy of Isaiah that we're all no doubt familiar with to one degree or another. There's the prophet long before he dies. In Isaiah 53, what does he say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Just take out that little word I and put in my. R. Take out that little word R our iniquities, and put in my iniquities. How does it sound? Look at Christ and repeat these words. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. What a difference it makes. And then in verse Six, we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all. This is my beloved son. How, I ask you, do you understand it? How is God able to lay your iniquity and your sin on his beloved son? How? How do you imagine it can be in the heart of God to do such a thing to his beloved son? It is because of what John tells us. God so loved the world. 
Who can grasp that? Can we even, can we reach beyond the love that God the Father had for his Son? Can we reach beyond that? John tells us God so loved. He so loved the world of guilty sinners that he gave his only begotten Son and he laid the iniquity of his people upon him. If you or I were asked to lay our iniquity upon him, do you think we would succeed very much when we don't even know the half of our iniquities? We can't even calculate the enormity of our sins to even lay them upon him. And yet God did it to make sure it would be perfectly done. Isn't that something? God didn't miss out any sins. He didn't miss out any of your sins or my sins. And he led them in all their filthiness, in all their heinousness, in all their vileness. He led them upon his beloved son, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The death of Christ was indeed a penal death. It was a death because of judgment. It was a death that was paying for sin. It was a death that was a substitutionary death. Yes, when Paul is writing these words to the Romans, and he says, Christ died, and when he says Christ died for us, he means he died in our place. If you and I were to be living in the time when Christ was crucified, you just think of it, those few souls that stood around the cross, those women that were standing there observing the suffering Redeemer, what would be going through their minds if they were understanding this is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? Wouldn't they be thinking, that's really my cross. His suffering is really my suffering. He's standing in my place. He's suffering in my place. And they would, no more than you or I, be able to understand the invisible weight of wrath, the consuming weight of darkness and wrath that descended upon him. We can only begin, as it were, to look into it. We cannot penetrate it when he uttered those terrible words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was he feeling? What was gone through the soul of the Savior when he addressed from that cross God 
who is so inflexibly holy that that sin that was laid upon his son that must be punished, it has to be atoned for. And Christ, the Son of God, without any sin, no reason why he should be separated from the Father, no reason why he should not be in perfect harmony with his Father. And he's asking this terrible question. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, he could understand. If God should forsake David, if God should forsake Manasseh, if God should forsake Simon Peter, My, there would be multitudes upon multitudes. And it would be so clear. God has forsaken him. God has forsaken her. Because of their sin and their guilt and their condemnation. God cannot possibly tolerate sin. It is no wonder then. That now tonight in a lost eternity... There are multitudes and they're forsaken by God. They're not asking the question in a lost eternity, why hast thou forsaken me? They know why they're forsaken. They know. It's my sin that has brought me here. I'm now reaping the wages of my sin. But Christ is saying, the Son of God, the sinless Lamb of God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Because he's the surety substitute. Do you ever stop to think for a moment, what is the experience like to be forsaken by God? God turning away, God turning his back, wanting nothing to do with us, forsaken, completely abandoned. And Christ is asking, why hast thou forsaken me? But this is the reason for it, because he is the substitutionary sacrifice He's dying in the place of his people. Are we truly thankful? Are we humbled here this evening? Do we ever go to Christ and embrace him with the arms of our souls and thank him? Thank him for what he did. Thank him that he stood in our place and kept us from in having to endure the awful wrath of God. But then, his death was an atoning death. It did atone for sin. And when he said, it is finished, 
He meant it. It is finished. I have done all that is required. Nothing more can be required of me. And who am I? I'm the substitute. I'm the sin bearer. And all these sins that have been laid upon me, I have atoned for them, every last one of them. And therefore now there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I have made a full atonement. Nothing more is needed. No one will ever have to try or attempt to make atonement ever again. This man, by one sacrifice for sin forever, has sat down in the right hand of the Father and I. Why? Because he has made a full atonement. There is no need for any purgatory. There is no need for poor souls to be tormented, to try and achieve peace with God by their own efforts. He has died. Christ died. And thus, an atonement has been made. But also... Christ died a conquering death. He made an atonement for sin and he put away sin forever and he overcame death. He destroyed the works of the devil. He destroyed his works. It was a death that was triumphant and he made a full atonement and then the apostle says, Christ died, yea, rather. Yea, rather, that is risen again. He died, and he triumphed over death. Death could not hold its prey. He rose again. This is what Paul says, he is risen again. And therefore, he proves that he is God. He proves that he is able to conquer death. He proves in his resurrection that he has made an atonement for sin. You think of it, if he had not risen again, what would that mean? He's still under the sentence of death. He is still laboring to make an atonement. God is not yet satisfied. God is not satisfied that the wages of sin are fully paid. But when he rises again, it proves that the atonement is completed. He has made a full atonement. God is satisfied. Sufficient wages have been paid. That's why it's so important you hear sometimes men trying to demonstrate how orthodox they are, how evangelical they are, and they will say, we, pray, we preach Christ and him crucified, and they center perhaps their whole ministry around that. But it isn't sufficient that Christ was crucified. He must rise again. 
And what does Paul say? Who is even at the right hand of God. Not only is his atonement accepted, his person is accepted. There's no sin still remaining upon him. All the sins that God laid upon him have all been atoned for. And now he can come into the very presence of God the Father, perfectly sinless. Every sin has been put away. Every last sin has been put away. And he's able to come into the Father's presence, perfectly free from all the sin that was laid upon him. But then the apostle says that he is at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Now, when we go back to the Old Testament and we go to that special day in the lives of the Hebrews in the wilderness, wherever else, on the Day of Atonement, before the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the blood had to be shed. Before he could take it and sprinkle it on the mercy seat between the cherubims, before he could do that, the blood had to be first of all shed. But the blood was shed outside. The blood had to be shed outside the Holy of Holies. And then it had the priest took the blood that had been shed outside and he took it to present it inside. It was shed outside, but he took it and presented it to God inside the Holy of Holies. Now what does the apostle tell us? That Christ is entered into the holy place not made with hands into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So you see, he suffered outside, outside the gates of Jerusalem. The blood was shed outside. But when he ascends to the Father's right hand as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he brings the blood of atonement that speaketh better things than that of Abel's. And he presents it before the Father. It was shed outside, but it is brought in by the great high priest to testify that his work is finished, that he has made a full atonement, and it is offered to God and he's satisfied. He is satisfied. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, we are told that uh, the Jews had a rope attached to one ankle so that when he was within the veil and they couldn't see him, and there God was a consuming fire, And if there was anything wrong with either the sacrifice 
or the blood or the incense, God said he would die. And they were afraid of that. And they knew if they could not hear the bells and the pomegranates that were round the the hem of the priestly garment, if they couldn't hear them, they knew something is seriously wrong. And they could not venture. They would die themselves if they went within the veil and they had to then. The only thing they could do would be drag drag the dead corpse out because God had not accepted it. God had not accepted the person and God had not accepted the blood and he had not accepted the sacrifice. But when Christ intercedes, he's accepted. He's accepted on behalf of his people. He's accepted to make intercession for them. And this is what Paul says who also maketh intercession, in addition to dying. He did that. But also, he makes intercession. Do we appreciate that? I fear that many people are simply satisfied he died. He didn't deserve to die. I deserve to die, but he died in my place. How wonderful that is. He made an atonement for my sin. But this is what Paul says, who also maketh intercession. How important that is. Who also maketh intercession for us. He died for us, but he makes intercession for us. And the child of God is so often troubled and anxious, as John the Apostle puts it, we ought not to sin, and if any man say that he hath no sin, he deceiveth himself. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. What an advocate he is. He maketh intercession. Whenever Satan, the great adversary, comes as the accuser of the brethren, and he comes into God's presence, you go to the book of Job and you see how accountable Satan is to God. And God inquires of him, where have you been, Satan? What have you been doing? And he asks him, have you been considering my servant Job? And Satan had been. He'd been giving a lot of attention to Job. And he was basically telling Job, or telling God, Job's only a hypocrite. He's only serving God because of the good benefits that he gets from that. He's in the favor of God, but he's only doing it for for selfish reasons. But when the accuser of the brethren who goes about, just as he did with Job, and he brings his accusations, 
My, you think of how he would have dealt with David or how he would have dealt with Simon Peter. You can't have Peter in heaven. There's no place for him. What? He's unreliable. You can't bring him into heaven. You can't allow it. He can't be among the holy angels. He can't be among the saints and the godly. What did Jesus say? I have prayed for thee. I have interceded. I have interceded for Peter. What did God make of the intercession? I have prayed for thee. And because I have prayed for thee, thy faith will not fail. It may be reduced greatly, but it will not fail. The root of the matter will remain. And the faith of Simon Peter will flourish again. And you see that in his ministry. He also, my, why is he talking this way? Because earlier on, in verse 32, Paul says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's given us a Savior and provided through him with an atonement, but he has also given us an intercessor. And no matter how unworthy we might feel ourselves to be, and no matter how wretched we may think we are, he intercedes. What an intercessor who also, in addition to all that he has previously done, this is what he's doing now. You think of it. He also maketh intercession, and when we go to the epistle to the Hebrews, he's the great high priest who was touched with the feelings of his people's infirmities, for he was tempted in all points as they are, yet without sin. And what are we told? He ever liveth to make intercession. He ever liveth to do that. It's as though that's his great work. And here's Paul saying, who also maketh intercession. What is he doing right now? For whom does he make intercession? For those for whom he made the atonement. I wonder what he's interceding now for. I wonder if we could get our ears near to the throne and we could hear him interceding. What would he be saying in your behalf? What do you think Christ would be saying to God on behalf of yourself? It is because of that intercession we're kept in fellowship and in communion with God. 
He gives us all things freely in him. What a treasure Christ is. What a treasure. What a wealth. What an abundance of blessing we have if we have Christ. But if we don't have him, we have absolutely nothing. We have in him an atonement. We have in him justification. We have in him a glorious intercessor. It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even, even at the right hand of God. Just read the very words. How full they are. Just read them. Even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. May he bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for thy beloved Son. We lament that we are not as thankful as we ought to be. We are ashamed of our lack of gratitude. Do thy work within us, that spiritual mind that understands all the fullness of the benefits that thy people have in Christ Jesus. May those this evening who know him not, may they indeed embrace him by faith and take his atonement and rest in his intercession. O oh, do thou bless thy word and receive us and pardon us. For Christ's sake, amen.